Hello, my name is Nikki Toyamasito, and I'm the executive director for Christians for Social Action, and your host for this podcast, 20 Minute Takes. This week, we're talking with Brandy Miller. She's the host and the creator of the podcast, Reclaiming My Theology. Brandy is one of the deepest and most thoughtful Christians that I know, and she takes us on her journey as she has rethought her faith. Brandy Miller, thank you so much for joining us on 20 Minute Takes. So happy to be here. Always a pleasure. You know, I, um, I've i been so impressed by the conversation that you're curating over at Reclaiming My Theology, your podcast. Can you tell us a bit about what it was that stirred or sparked the idea to start that podcast? Well, yeah, I had been thinking for a long time about how people do their faith and the ways that as I was working with college students for almost 10 years, I could see that the things that I was saying to them that were given to me by the evangelical organization I was working for mm-hmm. weren't actually intersecting their real life or the real questions that they were having. Mm-hmm. And as many of them, as I watched students lose their faith post-college, mm-hmm. I realized that the, the information that I was giving was insufficient to change their lives. Mm-hmm. And that that wasn't necessarily because the message itself was bad, but because there was this undercurrent of toxicity, oppression, white supremacy, violence that they were deeply suspicious of as they should have been. And so mm-hmm. some of the impetus for the work was to speak to the things that corrupt the Christianity that I think could be better. Mm. So you're kind of following those places of corruption, sort of asking tough questions uh, yes. about where that's coming from. I, I have been uh, really impressed because I feel like you take on some pretty complex and uh, meaty topics. Um, and at the same time, um, how, how is it that um, as you're – interrogating, as you're deconstructing, what is it that you use to sort of um, give you a foot to stand on while you're asking these questions? Or do you just get reoriented to not having an orientation? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, the irony is that the foundation that I have is from my like highly conservative theological background that did uh, it did many damages to my life. But one thing it did do was give me a love for scripture and a love for engaging with hard spiritual questions. And so even if those questions weren't particularly welcome, I did have resources to answer questions that maybe no one was asking. But I, I still had some sense that if you dig and if you search, you can find perspectives on things. And so as I have been working that out in as I as I change and as I, you know, to use the buzzword of the day, deconstruct, I find that I can hold one thing at a time and deconstruct this thing over here while not totally obliterating another thing. Because I think so much of the deconstruction journey for people is challenging because it happens all at one time. And so for me, the foundation I, I rest on really is I don't have to deconstruct all at once. I can go, ooh, that thing is really messed up. Or he actually, that doesn't seem like Jesus. Or actually, that doesn't seem consistent with reality or what it seems like Jesus's vision for the world is. And in not throwing out everything all at once, I've been able to more critically and responsibly, I think, engage with new perspectives um, because it's not just every new per- – because I think it's part of the issue with a lot of progressive ideology, especially in social media culture right now, is that whenever a new progressive idea comes out, it seems like it's the most right thing. And rather than just a voice that's contributing to the broader picture of what it means to live in the world. And so I'm trying to, in my own praxis, really hold the tension between, I've known all of these things, and there are these other ways of knowing, 
And if I hold those two together and let them be in conversation with each other, it's much more effective and much more helpful and much more really generous to all people than if I were to just throw everything out at once. Yeah. Because I think what you're describing is really true. I I have found a lot of folks who um, they they get a bit overwhelmed in the in the hard question asking and in a sense they just sort of toss everything out because it's like they don't quite know where to start um so what i hear you saying is you can hold some things and you use that to ask questions of other places it sounds like this sort of this like iterative like it keeps kind of flowing it's not like you answer one question and then it prompts the next but i use the word conversation why do you why do you talk about it as a, a conversation I do for several reasons. And it becomes very meta being a podcast host who dialogues about (laughs) theology for a living. Because what I'm trying to do in the podcast is model what I think theology should be, which is just God talk. It's, it's It's this discourse between people who are saying, hey, I've encountered the divine in this way. How have you encountered the divine? Oh, that doesn't make sense with how I've encountered God in whatever way. How do we make sense of that disconnect? And I think that part of the issue with a lot of the theology that many of us have inherited is that it was something that was that just that inherited. It was not conversed through. It was not thought through. It was something that we were told, this is the truth or you go to hell, or this was the truth or God's going to be mad at you or reject you. Or the more practical implication is that the community rejects you for what they think God will reject you for. And so very little is conversational because conversation is inherently dangerous. And so for me, I think that it's important to have conversation because one, that's how people in scripture figure things out themselves is by being like, I heard this thing from God and someone's like, no, you didn't. And they're like, yes, I did. And they're like, well, how did you know? You know, and so it's just them figuring it out along the way. But because we have this thing called the Bible, it's a lot easier for people in modernity to say, this isn't a conversation. It's an indoctrination, even though we wouldn't use that word for it. And so for me, conversation is the antithesis of indoctrination in our spiritual lives. Um, As you've been encountering uh, some of these really tough questions or these places of dissonance, what are some of the places of deep sorrow? What are some of the unexpected places of joy or encouragement that you've found in this process? I mean, the primary place of like grief or sorrow that I experience is really just that my work exists at all, right? I don't want to live in a world where we need to reclaim our theology. I don't want to live in a world where we need to be doing that. And the more I hear stories of the things that people experience in their churches, with their families, with their partners, the abuse and the injustice and how much that is tied to their view of God, self, and others. It makes sense. I don't know. I've been reading all these studies about how people are like more lonely now than they've ever been. And I'm like, Christianity has not helped that because we create theologies and practices that are super isolating for folks. And so I hear people saying all the time, like, I thought I was alone. And like, and right, they're saying it in, in a proactive positive, like, hey, I love your podcast or I love your work because it makes me feel like I'm not alone or I'm not crazy. And But to me, I'm like, oh, that means that for your whole life, you have felt alone or that you have been made to feel like you are not grounded in a reality that you've always been living in. And so I think I just hear those stories that people are sharing with me in the positive, but I can see the undercurrent of how that would be a positive thing for them. And it's really, really upsetting, I think. And then I think one of the things that brings me the most joy right now is just... uh I think people, I love when people fall in love with scripture and with what Jesus is like in the world. And I just think that like the story that has been given to us that we have inherited or been indoctrinated into is not good news. It's not a good story. And I think that when people are like, oh, I can trust my body. I can, I can explore things. I can try stuff and I can make mistakes and I can be with people I didn't think I could be with. And I can orient myself in different ways than I thought I could orient myself. 
that I'm seeing people just get really excited about what life with Jesus could look like. And I haven't seen that in a lot of conventional church spaces in a long time. That's not motivated by some like negative thing about yourself that God magically fixes, but rather just being like, oh, life with Jesus, I think by itself is very good. Like Jesus doesn't have to like be born miraculously or die triumphantly for the way of Jesus to be good. And I think people get to see that and experience that. And it's so beautiful because it really the thing that creates is love for self, love for others, and love for God that builds really beautiful, generous community. And I love that. Wow. That's amazing. Um, as you're talking, I'm getting goosebumps because I, I think that whole statement of like that your work almost wouldn't have to exist. What, As you have reclaimed your theology, what are some of the practices or ways that your spirituality has shown up in new ways that feel like these authentic expressions of, of this reclaimed theology? Well, a lot of it really is the conversational pieces. It's assuming from the beginning that I do not have the whole picture. And I think that so much of my spiritual practice before was like, I know this truth about God, and so I'm going to pray this truth about God, or I'm going to like worship this truth about God, or I'm going to, rather than being shaped by God in real time. And so I think the conversational piece has been a huge part of it for me, because I actually think it's far more challenging than any kind of systematic theology I've ever engaged with because I have to lean into empathy. Most theology does not require empathy. It requires, uh, I, I can't really think of the word, but just acceptance, I like, like just random acceptance of things that you may not believe. And so I think for me, it's been helpful to be challenged to go like, oh, I did not, I was really taught that you should not do that in your spirituality or think this way or do this thing. And then I'm like, yeah, but like, why not? Like, why how would God show up in this place if I were to believe you when you speak? And so I think that's been a difference for me because it's forced me to go, oh, maybe God is broader, bigger, more beautiful and kind, more accepting, more inclusive than I thought. And to recognize that even in like my own progressive paradigms to go, ooh, there are limits to my progressive paradigms that I haven't thought through and that keep me living in the ways that I don't want to be living right now, or like that I'm actively critiquing every week in my podcast, right? Like I want to have integrity. And so I think that that's been part of it. And then the other thing is I think that I just feel way less nervous about my spirituality. I think I just used to feel so everything, everything was framed as life or death. So it felt like life or death. And now I'm like, maybe life with Jesus is just living, like being together. It's talking to God about stuff. And when I think I'm hearing something from God, holding that with open hands rather than like some kind of tight grip, predestination, prophetic, whatever, just like holding those things and paying attention to my life and reading the story of my life that God has been writing forever and asking, where's the momentum of that going? Where is there dissonance? What's worked for me? What hasn't? And allowing that to shape me as I am myself, in my as my own life is in dialogue with the scriptures and with my spiritual practices in the church and all of that. Mm. That's I, I've never heard of this uh the empathy that leads to like how to enter into this conversation. And like even as you mentioned, I was like, oh, I don't know that systematic theology even elicits an emotion. It's it's almost seems like it's out of bounds. Right. Like you kind of have to scrub that or check that at the door. I love this like full showing up. It's such an inspiring picture. Where where have or how has uh, these other things, uh, patriarchy, white supremacy, how how have those snuck in and gotten entree into our theology? I mean, I don't even know if they've snuck into our theology as much as they are the entire foundation of it all. Um, when I think about 
how the lens that we read the scripture with, like, I, I think, that, so I was a part of InterVarsity for a long time, and we love inductive studies. So like, trying to like, look at all of the parts of the scripture and then deduce what the scripture is saying. But I think that there's a fallacy to that type of scripture study, because it assumes that you're bringing in no lens with which to shape what you see in the text. So like, how do I see gender in the text? So I might observe, Jesus shows up as a man. But like what that means that Jesus shows up as a man is highly contextual, is highly built into a lens. And does that mean that Jesus is domineering, assertive, violent? Does that mean that Jesus is all these, like, does that mean that Jesus is hospitable, soft, generous? And so the lenses that we bring, especially if we're in the United States, are almost always run through the lens of patriarchy and white supremacy before they really are any kind of contextual work. And I think that there is this, this kind of counter- narrative that I'm seeing where people are trying to like take the Bible and make it less problematic. But I think what we have to do is just go like, no, the Bible is in and of itself problematic. It has things in there that we should never be comfortable with, that we should never be excited about, that we should never try to twist our way into doing or engaging with. But I think what ends up happening is that because this like lens of like white supremacy or patriarchy or really just dominion and control enters our sense of the text, it shapes our view of God that we then read the rest of the Bible through. So if I assume that God is powerful and power in the United States looks like being a white man, and if being a white man means being ambitious, going for bigger and more and grander, and you can, and, and ambition is important, like then I see God as an ambitious CEO executive who's trying to build a giant company of people. And if I believe that to be true about God, then when God says like, or like when the Psalms say like, God is my shepherd, and we get this gentle image, instead what we do is we start to interpret that scripture as like, the shepherd's got the staff and is like whipping you around to get you to the right direction and like needs to break your legs to bring you home. And I'm like, the scripture actually doesn't give us any of that. But because the lens that we read of God is already so violent and corporate, it's really hard to, to say, oh, Jesus, when Jesus says... I'm gentle and lowly and meek. We're like, yeah, but like only for a while because like gentleness and lowliness and meekness doesn't do anything for us in American culture. And so I think that that shapes a lot of how all of that gets into our theology and then stays there because most of the voices that we hear talking about theology, if we're not intentional, are white men. Therefore, white men become the most authoritative voices who look the most like the image of God that they've created. And then, and I think the consequence of that, I don't think the consequence of that is that when someone like me, a black woman, gets up at the pulpit, I already look less like God and am more worthy of suspicion oh, than wow. the white man who gets up at the pulpit before me because yes. the image of God in me is not considered the image of God uh -huh. because the image of God is in Mark and in Brad and uh -huh. in John, you know? Yes, yes. And so I think that that shapes a lot of how we see God and people's legitimacy to theologize together. Wow. So it sounds like this initial frame that we approach is already shaped, mm -hmm. like it's a particular kind of person from this context. And that we're sort of doing mental gymnastics to make the rest of the things we see in scripture either reinforce or be a, a one-time outlier. We kind of explain yes. it away. So yes. I heard the you assumption say, of neutrality is the biggest mistake we can make, I think. Assumption. So instead of the assumption of neutrality, what is it that we should, where should we start? You know, I think in any kind of like I think about si like the scientific method, right? Or like even data collection. Like if I were saying I was doing a study of everyone in my church, 
but I only studied white, I only like got data from white men. And then I said, the whole church feels this way about our budget for this year. Uh-huh. You'd be like, that's a terrible method. But so to have a bigger picture of like what reality is in the space that I'm in or what reality is in our world, in, in how we exist, I think we have to have a way broader range of voices and experiences and opinions, knowing that some of those are going to be outliers. Like you're always going to have the person on Yelp who like reviews something totally outside of the culture of the place that they are and is like, this place is terrible and I hate it because it's the worst. And you're like, okay, well, that person doesn't, the, the reviews are still four or five stars. You know, like you you throw out the outliers, but you hold the center of what of what is being said. And so for me, I think if we can hold more pictures and ask, what is missing? What is dissonant? What is resonant? Where is their tension? Where is their life? Where is their death? That actually gives us a much better picture of things. So as I read queer theologians and black theologians and Latinx theologians, and as I read children's Bibles and listen to kids talk about God, like all of that tells me something that isn't just relegated to the realm of white male academia, mm-hmm. because that's where we're that's where we're mostly at now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you respond to folks who are like well, if we listen to all of these things, that um, that it becomes uh, so uh, like inclusive that it holds these contradictory things, and then we end up, in a sense, with mush. How how would you engage or respond with that? Is there ever too wide of a circle? Well, I would prefer mush to our current oppressive reality. So, firstly, <laughs> I think I would say that. The benefits of mush. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say if it's oatmeal versus a poison steak, I'll take oatmeal, right? Like that's just that's the reality. Um, But but I think part of the issue is that our imagination for the divine is so small that when we start to eliminate the boxes that our theology fits into, I think a lot of us become triggered. Really, we become triggered toward like, well, if believing the truth is what keeps me from a bad consequence then I must believe the right thing. And if every if it gets wider and wider, then what's right and what's wrong is like just nebulous. I'm like, that's not true. Because what you're saying is that theology, as it's broadened, loses its ethics. And that's not true. And so for me, I think that all of us have to start from a place of ethics and ask like, what are some inherent things about, like, does this cause death? If this causes death, we need to look at it. Jesus gives us this frame of, like, you know a tree by its fruit. And I'm like, okay, the broader theology gets, yes, the more complicated it gets, but does it create more death? Like, I don't think it does. Does it create more violence? I don't think it does. Does it create more colonization? I don't think it does. And so I think we have to become more care- more comfortable with, if we, especially for people who are like, say that God is big and eternal, if we believe that that is true, then our sense of who God is should be ever expanding rather than shrinking. And so much of our systematic theology or the- our theological approaches right now attempt to make sense of a God that has always said things like, if you see me, you will die. Like, th- this is this expansive, big, powerful, complicated God. And so I just think that we have to be a little bit more humble about what we believe about God. And if expanding is going to ruin our faith, then I think our our faith is already ruined. Oh, that's so interesting. So we're asking totally the wrong question. It's not what size box does God fit in, but rather how all these other things are actually revealing parts. Like I, this sort of big, you're, you're right. Like as you're saying, and that God is bigger than our imagination, that that God is, is bigger and bold. Okay. So I, I have a totally personally invested question because I think for me, I'm I'm trying to re- raise a couple of little peoples. 
And I feel like I have appreciated a lot of the hard questions that are being asked about the church and about the theology that I've received growing up. But when I think about, you know, like a grade school kid, I find myself reverting to these old tropes and dichotomies that I received. Um, Do you have any advice uh, as we are trying to sort of, uh, because those things are very easy. They're simple. They have a right and wrong, you know, like they're easy to transfer to like, but, but at the same time, I think, how do I transfer the questions to my kiddos who don't also have like a foundation? Do you have any advice of like, oh, what, these are actually the renewed paradigms. These are the renewed questions of, of how to do, uh, how to do or how to respond to the, the day-to-day moments. I don't know. But what I do know is that our theology is never meant to be static. And so much of the problem with how we teach kids about God is that we teach things and we call them fundamental truths that we then, yeah, that we then hope for them to believe forever instead of saying, hey, right now you're going to understand because you're like zero to three years old, you only understand things in concrete terms. So I might teach you Bible literalism or something or tell you a story as though it's real when you're three because your brain literally cannot understand anything outside of that kind of critical, like an uncritical framework. And like when a kid is in elementary school, they think of God as like God in the clouds, far away or magical. And of course that's true because they're imitating what they see in in media. But as kids get older and like, you know, I think it's like in their grade school years, they can separate like a personal fantasy from reality. They do that in every part of their lives. And so I think as kids grow and age, our view of God can become larger and more abstracted because after, you know, after we're like in, out of high school in our prefrontal cortex, abstraction makes more sense for our lives. And so I think I can't answer the question of like, how do you raise kids outside of the frameworks that we knew before? But I think if we assume that how we talk about God will change as kids develop and grow and as their brains literally shift in how they understand the world, then that can be really helpful for us in having less pressure on parents to do everything right, but also in how to assume in our own lives that the way that we understand the divine will change. Yeah. Oh, that's so super helpful. Brandy, as you think about the future and as you dream dreams for the church, what is the dream that you are moving towards that you're leaning into? That the church would be a space where everyone belongs, that there would be space, whether it's in a building or with people where people could be fully known and fully loved, regardless of where they're at. Like that, we all assume that, you know, I, I interviewed Dr. Willie James Jennings recently, and he described it as like uh, refusing to interpret scripture in our lives on our own. And I think that that would be my dream for the church is that we would interpret and dream together in a way that everyone would be more free. Wonderful. I love that dream. I want to join you in that dream. Brandy Miller, thank you so much for joining us on 20 Minute Takes. My deep pleasure. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. Our music was created by Andre Henry, and our show is produced by David Delion. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and if you want to find out more about our work, visit the website at christiansforsocialaction.org.